Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 6, The Fall of the House of Dulo. first 40 years or so of Bulgarian statehood that we've seen have been a true struggle for survival, juggling the enormous tasks of building a state from scratch and fighting for survival, no doubt left Bulgaria both enriched from her successes and utterly exhausted. Of course, following the near-death experience of the second Arab siege of Constantinople, the Byzantines too were completely exhausted. So perhaps it's not surprising that at this point, Bulgaria appears to enter a period lasting just over a decade during which everything is quiet, peaceful. Unfortunately, we're left with only the assumption that Bulgaria was so peaceful during this period, because as I've mentioned, there's a serious lack of primary sources from the Bulgarians themselves that, so once peace kind of comes with Byzantium, really everything just goes dark. We receive scattered mentions in the form of Byzantine chroniclers and lists of Bulgarian rulers, but these often contradict one another. As I've mentioned in the last episode, the date of Tervel's death varies by many years depending on which source you ask. But in such a violent period of human history, I believe we can cautiously assume that no news is likely good news. So today, we will discuss the first few Khans who followed the death of Tervel and the transition of royal houses which occurred during this period. As part of the background of these two royal houses, we're going to delve into the fascinating document that is the nominalia, nameless, of the Bulgarian Khans. At the end of this episode, we'll see Bulgaria moving into a period of intense instability which will consume the last half of the 8th century which we'll discuss next in episode 7. And we'll also have a quick overview of what's going on in the region at this period. But of course now I'm getting ahead of myself. So back to the death of Tervel in 721. At this point, his son Kormesi takes the crown and becomes the third Khan of the Bulgarians south of the Danube. He rules for 17 years. And... That's really about it. We have essentially no other record of Kormesi, except that his name arises in a few accounts. His successor, Sevar, has exactly the same issue, ruling from around 738 to 753. Essentially, nothing is known about those 15 years either. Trust me, I wish I could say more, but it's just silence. But what is known about Sevar is that he was indeed the last of the Dulo clan. Now, in order to explain what the Dulo clan is, I need to take a step back and discuss the document I just mentioned, the Nominalia of the Bulgarian Khans. Now, Nominalia, like I said, is Imenik in Bulgarian, a name list. So literally, a document which is simply a list of names and some small description of those names. But really, it tells us much more than that description would indicate. 
The document was discovered by Russian scholar Alexander Popov in 1861. Now, it was previously misidentified as a list of Assyrian kings, and so it had never really been thoroughly examined. But in fact, what Popov had uncovered was one of the most important documents related to the early history of the Bulgarians that we've yet found. But while this document is incredibly important, in many ways it actually raises more questions than it answers. If you remember episode 2, you'll remember that a lot of information about the early Bulgarians raises more questions than the answers. Now, it's believed to have been originally written sometime during the 1760s. Now, who was Khan during that period is a bit of an open question, as I'll soon discuss. But in the simplest sense, the nominalia is a sort of genealogy of the House of Dolu, tracing it back supposedly to the 2nd century AD. But much more than that, it reveals the mythologized origins of the House of Dolu and the first Bulgarian Khans, in addition to providing tantalizing clues as to the cultural influences of these early rulers. So where did it come from? Now, it's believed this list was likely originally carved into stone at Pliska. Much in keeping with the tradition and style of the Madara horse rider, it appears that the rather dramatic gesture of carving achievements, genealogies, and other forms of propaganda into solid rock was popular amongst the Hans. Indeed, as I discussed previously, it's possible that doing so in stone provided a nice contrast for them. They wanted to shake the perception that they were simply another tribe of barbarians who had come and would soon go within the larger Roman Byzantine world. If you've ever been to, say, Rome or my hometown of Washington, D.C., then you know that nothing says permanence and power like stone. So how does something which was likely carved into solid rock at Pliska, ended up in the hands of a 19th century Russian scholar. Well, the manuscript, which was eventually discovered, was in all likelihood a copy of a copy, possibly of a copy or another copy. So the result is that eventually three different versions of the nominalia were discovered, each with its own variations likely deriving from this copying. So this makes it even more difficult to interpret the document. These variations, again, probably arose from copying in addition to translating and the changing of alphabets. The original stone inscription would, as likely from other things in that period, been written in Greek with the Greek alphabet, because there was no written alphabet associated with whatever language the Proto-Bulgarians were speaking or with what the Slavs were speaking. So if you wanted to write, you had to write in Greek letters, and writing in Slavic or Proto-Bulgarian with Greek letters is a bit awkward. You don't have all the sounds you need. So most things like this would probably have been written in Greek. And then they would eventually be translated into the Old Slavonic language with the Galgalitic script, stuff we'll talk about way down the road, and then finally translated into Cyrillic and possibly other languages. Again, I'm not an expert on the sort of list of languages that these went through, but this is a you know, being sort of familiar with the history, you can piece this together as a broad, likely outline of what happened. So we're looking at a few languages here, a few alphabets there. It's not really surprising that things have gotten mixed up through the centuries. In fact, the changes of language and alphabet say some interesting things about how scholars look back on the pre-Christian history of Bulgaria. 
For example, whereas other early sources use the title Khan to describe the pre-Christian leaders, the nominalia tends to use the Slavic word for prince, knyaz. Perhaps this change was made to make the document more understandable, or perhaps it was an attempt to whitewash the proto-Bulgarian Central Asian heritage. From the time of Attila onward, the title Khan could certainly be seen as some kind of a double-edged sword. Conjuring the incredible power of that ruler, as well as eventually the Mongols when they come under the scene, just as easily as it would bring images of Asiatic despots and the worst sort of quote-unquote barbarians into the minds of Westerners. So, for some people, it's a nice term to use, and for other people, they want to be as far away from that term as possible. In other ways, however, the document actually just reinforces this steppe heritage. Now, for me, perhaps the most interesting thing about the nominalia is the calendar system it uses. Now, it's easy to forget today that world history has seen innumerable calendar systems, and the near-universal use of the Gregorian calendar today is a relatively recent development in human history. Well, most people are familiar with the Chinese calendar, right? It labels years with animals. Now, this system, in one form or another, has been around for thousands of years. It was actually prominent amongst many neighboring tribes who lived on the Central Asian steppe and who had a lot of cultural contact with Chinese tribes and groups. So what we see in the nominalia is a system which relies on 12-year cycles named after animals, both real and mythical. This demonstrates that while by the mid-8th century the Bulgarians were certainly adopting many Byzantine practices, especially in governing and bureaucracy, other deeply important cultural aspects remained unchanged. I suppose there must have been a bit of a conflict, as the Byzantine calendar was as much a religious tool as an administrative one. Therefore, while adopting the administrative tactics of the Byzantines appeared to have been no problem for the early Bulgarians, their, their calendar's religious connotations were probably seen as a step too far. So again, we see that the Bulgarians are balancing their cultural influences, steadily changing, but at the same time trying to appease the different factions within their empire. This process of cultural change, in fact, has been ongoing for the entirety of Bulgarian history. The conversion to Christianity will go a long way to banishing the old pagan practices, but in many ways they still exist. For example, you can look no farther than the Kukari festival or the recent celebration of Baba Marta for signs that pre-Christian culture still exists throughout Bulgaria in many ways. But in any case, the fact that this document shows that the Bulgarian calendar system during the early years of the First Empire can be traced directly back to China is a rather fascinating example of how culture can move across immense distances. Still, while this element of the calendar is fairly clear, the exact translation of the animals is still being debated amongst linguists and scholars. The main point of contention here connects right back to episode 1, whether the proto-Bulgarian language is Iranian or Turkic in origin. Still, the debate here is mostly based around linguistics, so it's a bit off-topic for us. Alright, now with all that explanation, here is a translation of the nominalia using the most recent of the three theories on the animal names, and with some of my own touches to make the text a bit more readable and understandable. Quote, Avitohol lived 300 years, 
His clan was Dulo, and he ascended to the throne in the fourth year of the serpent. Irnik lived 150 years, his clan Dulo, and he ascended to the throne in the fourth year of the serpent. Gostum, the regent, two years, his clan Ermi, and he ascended to the throne in the fourth year of the boar. Kurt ruled 60 years, his clan Dulo, and he ascended to the throne in the fifth year of the ox. Besmer, three years, and his clan Dulo, and he ascended the year in the fifth year of the ox. These five princes ruled the kingdom over the other side of the Danube for 515 years with shaven heads, and after that came to this side of the Danube, Asperuchnyaz, and until now rules. Asperuchnyaz ruled 61 years, his clan Dulo, and he ascended to the throne in the first year of the dragon. Tervel, 21 years, his clan Dulo, and he ascended to the throne in the fourth year of the horse. Sevar, 15 years, his clan Dulo, and he ascended to the throne in the twelfth year of the hen. Gormisosh, 17 years, his clan Vokil, and he ascended to the throne in the fourth year of the ox. End quote. Now, there are three more rulers listed here, but I don't want to go on and on and on, and these are rulers that we'll talk about as we go. So, you can get a better idea of what I'm talking about here, is a list of these rulers, and the sort of pomp and circumstance of the list, the sound of the list, and how it must have looked carved into solid rock at Pliska. And beyond that, I'm sure you're noticing several interesting things here. But first, that the early rulers of the Proto-Bulgarians were somewhat mythical figures, who, it was believed, lived sometimes for hundreds of years. Indeed, the names of some of these rulers were believed to tie the Proto-Bulgarians back to the same clan which produced Attila the Hun. Now, whether this is true or not, I really have no evidence, but it adds to the perception that the Bulgarians of the 8th century were two distinct things. First, they were people tying themselves to the powerful legacy of the steppe, both legendary and real. Claiming relation to Attila would have been a way to claim some of the power and legitimacy that he once held in the Roman world. But at the same time, as we've talked about, the new state was spending these decades moving away from its steppe heritage by building in stone and adopting many practices from the Byzantines. But time and time again, they're making statements that they had no intention of leaving this new home. So, as will be the case throughout Bulgarian history, again, a balance is being maintained, a balance between the positive and negative elements of the Bulgarian past. The Khans appear to be seeking to use the fearful legacy of the power of the steppe peoples to increase their prestige while also moving away from that legacy by building in stone and mimicking many Roman practices. Okay, so... Now we're going to get back to the narrative. As I mentioned, Sebar was the last to rule from the house of Dulo. The link back to that mythical ruler mentioned the Nominalia was now broken. However, the new house of rulers, that of the Uopil, also had quite a history. They were yet another of the great families of the Central Asian steppe, but instead of tracing their line to Attila, they traced theirs back to the Yueji people, of what is now the far west of China. You'll remember from episode 2 that the Central Asian steppe 
was often something of a billiards table with each tribal movement or conquest pushing others out in disparate directions. Well, what we know now from the chroniclers is that the Wokil were pushed westwards to the area around the Aral Sea after losing to the Huns in the 2nd century. This is likely where they may have come into contact with the Proto-Bulgarians, as this area is relatively close to several of the proposed sort of origin areas for that tribe. So likely as a result of marriage, again, these are, would have been kind of two relatively powerful tribes, a portion of the leaders of this tribe incorporated themselves into the aristocratic class of the Proto-Bulgarians, called the Boyars. Then several hundred years later, whether through violence or perhaps simply due to the lack of an heir, we really don't know, the time of the Dulo clan came to an end, and this family, the Wokyul, took over the position of Khan in the first Bulgarian Empire. Now the man who took power for his family was Kormisos. But as his story marks the beginning of a period of violent infighting amongst the Boyar nobles, I'm going to leave a discussion of him to the next episode. I wanted to save a further discussion of him for that kind of larger narrative. But now to finish off this episode, I want to take a quick look at Bulgaria's neighborhood and see what's changed in Europe since we took a look around the area in the first episode. So, beginning in the far west, the early 8th century sees the kingdom of the Visigoths, based in the Iberian Peninsula, modern Spain and Portugal, finally taken over by Arab and Berber Muslims. This is important for two reasons. First, the kingdom which is formed, called Al-Andalus, will rule this area for nearly eight centuries and will create a center of Islamic culture and learning which will rival and even surpass Baghdad. Secondly, the destruction of the Visigoths marks the end of a transition period from the old Western Roman Empire, as a Visigothic kingdom represented one of its successor states, and in many ways continued some of its cultural practices in the areas it ruled. With the coming of Islam, the transitional phase of Iberian history was over. Important links to the Roman era were destroyed. A part of this transition was also the Battle of Tours, which occurred in what's now southern France in 732. I mentioned it in the last episode. This marked the point at which this Islamic expansion into Western Europe was blunted, setting the stage for hundreds of years of Western European history, where the Pyrenees Mountains, or the area around them, will form a sort of dividing line between a Muslim Iberian Peninsula, or in many ways a multicultural Iberian Peninsula, and the Frankish state in what's now France. Nearby, in the other successor state of the Western Romans, I just mentioned, the Kingdom of the Franks, they were transitioning from the early Merovingian period to the Carolingian period. Now, this transition also signified a more full transition from the late Roman period into the Middle Ages. It also brought the explosive reign of Charles Martel, who helped solidify his kingdom's position as the dominant power of Western Europe. Eventually, this kingdom will actually play a role in Bulgarian history, as the borders of it will stretch into Western Europe and eventually meet the growing borders of the First Bulgarian Empire. In the north of Europe, the Danes were crafting the epic poem Beowulf. The British Isles were divided into seven powerful kingdoms, 
and would hold sway until the Vikings began their attacks just at the end of the 8th century. In Italy, the Lombard domination of the north of that peninsula was waning, and they would soon be absorbed by the aforementioned Carolingian Empire. Across the Adriatic Sea, South Slavic peoples, the Serbs and the Croats predominantly, were still divided into small tribes led by their native chiefs. However, consolidation was slowly occurring, and by the time the ninth century comes along, Serbia and Croatia would both emerge as kingdoms to rival Bulgaria in the Balkans and Central Eastern Europe. Important changes were also occurring with Bulgaria's most direct neighbor, the Byzantines, and their next direct neighbor, the Avars. Around this time, Avar power was waning, and what's more important is not that this was happening, but really why it was happening. Because the Avar Khanid had a lot of similarities with the first Bulgarian Empire. In both cases, a nomadic group of possibly Turkic peoples established a state in which they govern a multi-ethnic but increasingly Slavic population. While, gra While gradual assimilation occurred in both cases, also interestingly, the Slavic language appears to have gained predominance in both cases as well, it appears that the Avars were unable to establish themselves firmly enough to resist attacks from their neighbors. Throughout the first half of the 8th century, Avar culture, by assimilating with Slavic culture in many ways, was itself spreading, and with the spreading to other Slavic tribes. But at the same time, the Avar core was weakening, so that by the later half of the century, the Magyars, Bulgars, Slavs, and Franks dismembered the large Avar land holdings in Central and Eastern Europe. While the first Bulgarian Empire will eventually be dismembered as well, the difference is that the Bulgarians appear to have established themselves well enough to survive culturally without a state for over a century between their first and second empires. The Avars, on the other hand, fade into states established by the peoples I just listed. They vanished from the map of Europe forever. In doing so, Bulgaria both lost a rival and a relatively stable state on its largest and most exposed border. As we will see, the collapse of the Avar Khanate will create enormous opportunities and enormous dangers for Bulgaria. Finally, the Byzantine Empire around this time was going through the Isaurian dynasty, which lasted from 711 to 802. In the early stages of this period, following the point where we left off with the Second Arab Siege of Constantinople, the empire was distracted by two major things, continuing to fend off the Arabs and continuing to define Christianity within the empire. Now with the former, despite some successes, the Byzantines were slowly losing territory to the Arabs. Cities were being sacked, towns were being raided, and the Byzantines appeared more and more powerless to defend their borders. Now, partially in response to this, Believing that the losses to the Arabs signified God's displeasure, the Emperor Leo decided that the empire had lost favor with God and had to institute religious reforms in response. This reform came initially in the form of an attempt to forcibly convert the empire's Jews in 722, but soon took a far more dangerous course with the attack on icons. Now this fight within Christianity is going to go on for a very, very long time, and so we're going to discuss it on several occasions, 
But in short, Leo decided that venerating icons, or symbols of any kind, was heresy. That meant that images of Jesus, crucifixes, images of saints, relics of saints, and many other things suddenly went from being material representations of spirituality, genuinely holy things, to being heretical, images of heresy. Now, this belief was not popular for the most part, as most people quite like their crosses, painting of saints, etc. So, as the 8th century progresses, the battles over this religious question are going to get bloodier and bloodier, as a near-civil war bubbles under the surface. Now, you can probably understand why the Byzantines didn't pay much attention to the Bulgarians during this time. But all that is about to change when the new emperor Constantine V takes power in 741. All right, now that's all for today. As I mentioned, next time we're going to delve into a period of chaotic dynastic change and renewed war with Byzantium. This podcast is produced by Martin Christoff. The composer of our theme music is Teddy Raven, and the story is written by me, Eric Halsey. Help us to spread the word by liking us on Facebook, writing a review on iTunes, and checking out our website at bghistorypodcast.com. Seriously, liking us on Facebook or giving us a review on iTunes makes a huge difference. If we get enough positive reviews on iTunes, we can end up on the front page and we can get a lot more listeners. And more listeners will mean better content for you guys. Now, also for this episode, we have some great maps of Europe and the Byzantine Empire, which we're posting on the website, which will give you something to follow along with. So when I'm talking about the Visigoths, when I'm talking about the kingdoms in uh, what's now the British Isles, etc., etc., you can get some geographic idea of what I'm talking about. Also, as always, please consider making a donation with the PayPal button on the website. It makes a big difference for us, and it really gets the whole team extra excited about making that week's podcast. Now, finally, I want to do something new and tell you all about a great new project called Kashkaval Tourist, being created by a few friends of mine. Now, this is a different kind of tourist blog for Bulgaria, one which shows the country through the eyes of the young, the curious, and the historically minded. Now, for those of us who are sick of discussions of Bulgarian tourism, which are cheesy or misinformed, it's a real breath of fresh air. And for those of you who know nothing about Bulgaria, it can show you why, for example, I've lived there for so many years. There really are a lot of fascinating things that most people have no idea exist there. So I really encourage you guys to check it out. Also, for those of you who are curious, a Kashkaval tourist is a Bulgarian term for a person who goes hiking with a huge amount of food and basically ends up feasting and snacking more than hiking. But I can assure you, having been hiking with the guys who are creating the podcast, I think the name's tongue-in-cheek. Anyways, so that's all for now. Until next time, uspech, or in English, good luck. <laughs>